Welcome to SGO On The Go, where we discuss advances in gynecologic oncology research, clinical practice, and other hot topics in our subspecialty. I'm Maddie Facemeyer, and today we continue our series called Turnover Talks, bite-sized summaries of SGO webinars, short enough for your OR turnover. Hi everyone, I'm Brittany Davidson and I'm a GYN oncologist at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. Today we're fortunate enough to have Dr. Christina Fotopoulou joining us for this turnover talk today, following her All Things Ostomy webinar. As a brief introduction, Dr. Fotopoulou is a consultant gynecologic oncologist in the United Kingdom and is a professor in the Department of Surgery and Cancer at the Imperial College of London. She is known nationally and internationally for her expertise in radical surgery, and as well as her involvement in surgical trials that have really helped establish guidelines for ovarian cancer care across Europe. Thank you so much, Dr. Fotopoulou, for joining us here today. Your webinar with Dr. Clivey was truly fantastic and is so valuable to our membership. Um, so today we're hoping that we can highlight a few of the important points that you made during that webinar both regarding the technique of ostomy creation, as well as some of the common complications that people may run into. So let's start a little bit with the technique of creating a stoma. Where would you say is the optimal location of a colostomy versus that of uh, an ileostomy? So first of all, thank you, Britain. It's a pleasure to be again uh, with the SGO team and with you. I really enjoyed the, the webinar uh, that we had with Dr. Clavi very much. And I'm really, I was very happy when I received your invitation to repeat a bit, um, some of it again. So thank you, thank you very much. So um, how do we, the technique? So there are different, so the techniques, the principles of techniques in ileostomy and colostomy are, pretty much the same. What changes is uh, the location of, um, of the stoma and also how averted you will do the ileostomy compared to the colostomy. So what I always recommend in terms of, in terms of the actual location on the abdomen, on the, on the abdominal cavity is that in, in cases where you have, where you expect that you need to do a stoma, that you have a preoperative sighting, where a stoma nurse or at least somebody who knows how to sight, they mark at least two, ideally four areas in, in the abdomen, right and left, in order to uh, for you to know during the operation where to get the stoma out. And especially in older patients, especially in obese patients, um, patients with extensive surgeries, it is a real trouble and torture for the patient. If you don't do it in a position where the back will stick, then you have chronic leaking. It, it is usually very, very impairment. It's a big impairment for the quality of life of the patient. So um, in, in, uh, as, soon as, so as soon as you have the stoma site, you will try during the operation to go and take this stoma site. Sometimes if you do a palliative operation because of a bowel obstruction with mesenteric retraction and extensive bowel resections, then very often, unfortunately, it's not possible to use that mark, in which case you just use the area where the bowel comes out to, wherever that is, unfortunately. So um, important is that um, you have a coha, you, you have to, so how I do it is that you have two cohas and you retract the sheath uh, towards the midline um, so that you don't do a tunneling when you create the stoma. And, um, and, and what you do is that practically you, you open up with a scalpel the skin 
a small incision initially because a small incision can always get bigger, but not the other way around. And if you have a very big, very big hole in the skin, what happens sometimes is that you can have um, you can have herniations. The stoma might not be able to be sutured well. So I always start with a small hole, which you can then always expand. Um, there is a broad rule of two fingers needing to be able to pass through uh, the skin and the sheath. You, you try to do a cylinder, not a cone, a cylinder from the skin till down the sheath. It can be sometimes tricky in more obese patients, uh, but important is that you just go vertically down and not like a cone. Um, and then when you reach the sheath, either you make a, an elliptic, incision or you just make a cross I usually will do a cross and try to always put your stoma through a muscle so that you minimize minimize that you reduce the risk of a hernia uh, and then uh, as soon as the as soon as you defect practically because what you create is a hernia at the end yeah and as soon as this is done, you need then to take with a sponge holder or something all traumatic the bowel and pull it out of the of the hole. If it is a double barrel ileostomy or a double barrel stoma in general, I will always use a um, a rod. Whereas if it's an end stoma, of course, I will not. The difference between ileostomy and colostomy is that it needs to be a bit more averted the ileostomy, just because the the especially in high um, in, in more proximal stomatas, like in a hydrogenostomy, what comes out of the stoma can be very irritating for the skin, especially if it's a high output stoma. So it's better if it is more averted than if it's just on the same level as, as the skin. So what I'm hearing is you really, the height of the stoma is important, especially for an ileostomy to protect that skin. Exactly, exactly. That. Great. There's another point that you had made in the webinar that I just wanted to touch on real quick is that you mentioned in situations where you were not planning on reversing a stoma, that you will oftentimes suture the bowel to the abdominal wall. Yeah, so yes, so not uncommonly, we have retractions, especially in more obese patients, retractions in patients with mesenteric carcinosis, where the bowel just doesn't stay very well where you suture it and it just needs a bit of help from um from deeper so what i do is that i will suture i will put like a cross i will put three four sutures um to stabilize and fixate the the bowel with the inner part of the sheath got it okay so that um it's there and even in case of retraction the whole i mean i have had sometimes patients where the whole stoma was retracted so much where you really have to completely refashion the whole stoma. So by fixating it from inside, this mm -hmm. risk is actually a bit more minimized. That's and not something that I have traditionally done, and I'm excited to practice it because certainly in obese patients, it can be really challenging. So thank you exactly. for that tip. Exactly. Um, in the webinar, you also mentioned your preference to perform a colostomy wherever possible. You know, what do you see as the advantages versus dis disadvantages of the colostomy versus the ileostomy? Yeah, so it, it, at the end, it's all about indication. When you have a patient with extensive bowel obstruction where you need to do a subtotal colectomy, there is no other way than doing an ileostomy. Yeah? Mm -hmm. However, what I was saying in the webinar is that I personally was trained and, and, and brought up not to do protective stomatas 
if I do a rectal resection and anastomosis, just because um, if you do a protective stoma, then 100% of your patients will need to be reoperated to have this put back. Whereas if you don't, then you only need to take back to theater 5% of them. <laughs> so yeah. it's, yeah. And, and we are very lucky in gynecology. oncology. We have actually lower leak rates than the colorectals just because we operate women. They have broader pelvis. They are not irradiated the um, distance from the anal verge is much higher and much larger longer than in colorectal patients where very often they have to anastomose two, three centimeters from anus. We almost never need to do that. Our anastomoses are very, most of the time, seven, eight, nine centimeters up, up the, from the anal verge, just because when you mobilize the whole unblock package, Mm-hmm. At the end, you reach always a distance of at least eight, eight, seven, eight centimeters. So, because of that, I will not do a protective ileostomy in generally, not routinely. Yeah. If, however, I see that the patient is older, has hypoalbuminemia, has a lot of ascites, I think it's tricky to do an anastomosis. What I will do is that I will not put it through the risks of an ileostomy, which also has risks in terms of volume losses, a lot of high output, even if at some point it normalizes, it will take a few weeks till it normalizes. It's not the same as having a colostomy. And um, and a stoma, an ileostomy per se, has also risks of herniation, ulceration, etc. So if I see that in a patient, erectile anastomosis will be too tricky or very, very challenging or very high risk, I will prefer to be honest to do a Hartman's or um, if I want to do a double barrel I will see whether there is a left colorectal mobile so that I do even a double barrel transfer zostomy um, and then reverse it reverse it back so that um, I don't have the the disadvantages of ileostomy which are usually the high output electrolyte disbalance absolutely what are you if god forbid that happens and you're in that high output ileostomy um, predicament, you know, what are some of your first line steps to start managing that? Yeah, very, um, a very good question. And, and usually these are patients who will, at least when I do an ileostomy, that they probably won't have any other bowel to have. So it will be practically patients that probably have only a small bowel. Mm-hmm. Then loperamide, we have the Sunmark solution. There are many solutions full with carbohydrates and electrolyte replacements so that they um, they don't have electrolyte disbalances. Um, I always tell them not to eat and drink at the same time so that mm-hmm. it doesn't get flushed out. That's a great tip. Um, exactly. You can sometimes try to give octreotide, so anti-motilica and, and things like that. Excellent. Thank you so much. There's another complication that you highlighted that I wanted to make sure we touched upon today, and that's the complication of a mucocutaneous separation. Can you explain a little bit about what this is and how you would typically manage it if it happened? Yeah, so that can happen, and it depends. The way that you will manage this depends on how close to the operation, to the time of the operation, this will have happened. So, if it is something that will happen in the first week, sometimes the suture gets, uh, or the hole that you made is too big, or the suture is gets dislocated, I will usually just resuture it. You can just do it with local anesthesia and just resuture it. You don't need to take the patient back to theater, you just resuture it. Mm-hmm. If it's something that will happen longer time after the operation, just because of a problem of infection, ulceration, then of course, per definition, you cannot suture an ulcerated area. So what I would do is I would check that there isn't any, any leak of the stool inside the abdomen. 
uh, I would lavage it, I would uh, try to see if there is any debridement that I would need to do, and then I would use something like calcium alginate or some ostomy powder in order to, um, to, in, to induce the wound healing. Um, you usually have to cut the bugs, the stoma bugs, in a different way so that they don't irritate the area, and then just give it time. If the patient is on Avastin, stop any Avastin with Asisumab. Yes, excellent. And if you see any, any, any inflammation or whatever, then treat antibiotically. Got it. Thank you so much. Wanted to come back a little bit to that concept of that stoma refraction that you mentioned earlier. You know, how do you know when, when you need to take someone back to the operating room um, for a revision? Because, you know, how retracted is too retracted that needs yeah. revision? No, that's a very good point. So sometimes the stoma is so much retracted that you can't even see it. <laughs> Um, and then where you have the fear that everything that comes out will perhaps find its way even back to the abdomen. So if this is the case, then there are two ways to, there are two ways to try to manage it. The one way is to just take the patient back to theater, do a real laparotomy or whatever, and try to make just a new stoma. A second way to do it, if, if the retraction is not very severe, is to try to refashion it from the outside so that you don't really do a, a reoperation again permit line, but you just try to refashion the stoma. You cut out perhaps in obese patients like a, an, elliptical, an elliptical area of the fat sheath and try to put this, the skin deeper and suture it again on the stoma with some local anesthetic. This is also possible. Excellent. So that you practically like, like, like cut away like a little cone. Yeah, yeah, like you're thinning the abdominal wall in that Exactly, area. exactly. Got it. Okay, excellent. Thank you. What about peristomal hernias and also mucosal prolapse? What are your approaches to those? Yeah, so, I mean, there is, there is really no, no way to prevent really a hernia. This is per definition a hernia. A stoma is a hernia, yeah? So as I said in the beginning, you try to put it between the abdominal wall muscles so that there is a bit of more tension, but actually the risk of a hernia is always very high. I would recommend against putting a mesh around it. There are some people who will take a mesh, they will put a hole in the middle and they will just pass the stoma through a mesh because this might cause, especially in patients with extensive stripping, carcinosis, who may need surgery, again, this may cause trouble. So I would not recommend it. If it's a um, belts, hernia belts, you can use. If it's a large mucosal prolapse, then we said in the webinar, Bill had this, where you put sugar, I think it was. Yeah, table sugar. I personally have never, yeah, I personally have never used it before, to be honest. But I would try to, I would try as much as possible to not reoperate those patients. That's yeah, fair. Try to, do, to, to manage it conservatively. Excellent. Thank you. The last thing that I want to touch on today is this, just, um, is the difference between necrosis and cyanosis. You had mentioned yeah. that oftentimes cyanosis um, can be misdiagnosed as necrosis. So how do you yeah. tell the difference? Yeah, so in the majority of the patients, especially in extensive debulkings, in obese patients with carcinosis, the stoma will look a bit tortured the first days. After the operation, it will be look bruised, yeah, in simple words, and it will be a bit cyanotic but actually if you if you take your finger or you take a forceps the back of the forceps and you look you try to pull it a bit the walls a bit 
more to lateralize them and look inside, the, the actual stoma is pink. Yeah. Okay. And it should actually over the course of time, everything get 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 better. The lactate of the patient is normal, the stoma works normally, the patient mm-hmm. is well. If, however, you see that this does not get better, the cyanosis gets more, the lactate of the patient starts increasing, then we are truly talking about a a necrosis, uh, a necrosis here. And in that case, you need to to take the patient back to theater and do a new stoma. Excellent. Is there anything that we can do to prevent necrosis from happening in the first place? Yeah, mobilize, mobilize adequately. See mm-hmm. when we sometimes very often, if we mobilize too much in order to pull it out, especially in obese patients, you um, denude the distal part of the stoma so much that it stays with you devascularize it practically. And then at the end, um, it, it gets necrotic. So yes, mobilization, but not to devascularize it at the end so much that it will get um, it will get necrosis. Therefore, I would recommend that any mobilization doesn't just happen at the distal part, but really centrally that you mobilize the entire mesentery and have achieve adequate length and mobilization centrally, not just at the edge of the stoma. So more mobilization upstream. Excellent. Exactly. Thank you. So I think we'll wrap up our brief discussion with Dr. Fotopoulou today. I cannot thank you enough for making time for us. No, it's Um, my pleasure. We so appreciate it. And hopefully I look forward to meeting you in person one day. I really hope to. When this amazing (laughs) pandemic will be going. I cannot wait. But it's, I mean, on the other hand, this pandemic has also brought us closer with these webinars. That's fair. That That is fair. It's a very big honor that you have asked me to, to be with you today. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO on-the-go podcasts, please email us at education at sgo.org. 